How do I make a difference in the inner city as a Christian? That's the question we'll be covering today on the Monday Christian Podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here's your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there. Thank you so much for taking some time to check out this podcast. We're in episode number three, officially, of our podcast series here. And uh, I just hope that you've been enjoying these so far. And we're getting into the cold months now in January. And I hope you're enduring that pretty well. And uh, I know up here in Toronto, it's just a little bit chilly this time of year. But we're making it just fine. So, hey, make yourself comfortable, whether you're on the go train going to work or you're, you've got this turned on and you're uh, driving to school or whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's on a Monday or all throughout the week. I just hope that this conversation that I'm going to have today with my brother-in-law, Matt Hallam, who pastored in the inner city of Cincinnati, Ohio, for over a decade. Matt just has some really great, fantastic wisdom to share when it comes to inner city ministry and how we as Christians can make a difference when we live in the city and live out the message of the gospel to those around us. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this conversation that I have with my brother-in-law, Matt Hallam. One of the reasons I wanted to bring Matt on the podcast today was for um, just a number of years now, you could give me the exact date, but you you and the, my sister Dorcas have worked in the inner city ministry. And um, how, how long has that been now? Uh, it's been 14 years. So we started uh, 2002, and actually Dorcas was there two years before I was, so she would have started in 2000. Wow. And But you didn't grow up in the city. No, no, definitely not. Grew up an hour south of Pittsburgh, but we very rarely were in Pittsburgh. And um, I remember being in school and they'd say, what city do you live in? And the city was Graysville. And it always made me confused because it wasn't a city. It had about 300 people there. It had a little grocery store that shut probably about seven o'clock every day. And that was pretty much my experience of city life would have been Graysville, Pennsylvania. That's, that's funny because that would have been very similar to, I guess, what Dorcas grew up with in Cochrane, Ontario where I remember when we would grow up, we would make our um, once-a-month pilgrimages to Walmart and, <laughs> and, uh, and would finally get, you know, that was we were, when we got to Timmins, which is a town of about 100,000 people. That was when we were hitting it big. But when you first moved to the city then, what was that, what was that like? Did you, did you like the city um, or was it different than what you anticipated? Yeah, it was very different than what I had grown up in. I did like the city. I think it was kind of an adventure. I think a lot of people coming from the country, you know, you talk about it, people being apprehensive, but I think that's more maybe adults that are coming in, you know, a little bit later in life that have already made their choice. They want to be in the country. But I think for a lot of young people, and you see it with all the people that are moving to the cities now, I think that the city is a place that they want to be. There's a lot of community, a lot of people, and um, it. It seemed like a big adventure going into it. So when did you first take an interest in inner city ministry? Was, did that happen almost immediately when you came or 
were you intimidated at first or, or did it just happen almost automatically? Right. I don't think my interest was so much in inner city ministry at first. I remember being in a Christian service class. I uh, went to God's Bible school in college and they required that everyone be involved in Christian service, which basically need to be involved in some kind of ministry and outreach, you know, sometimes through the week. Um, and what really caught my interest was the teen ministry. Back at home, Pennsylvania, we'd had a very active youth group. And coming out to Cincinnati, that was something that I was very excited to be part of. Um, teen Power was a ministry that had been started down at Main Street about two years before, and they had worked with inner city teens to, you know, give them on a Tuesday night, they'd get them together, they'd have a lot of fun activities, do a devotional, and then give them a snack. And that was something I got involved in. So I can't say starting off that I really was um, passionate about inner city ministry or had any necessarily pull to it. I just wanted to be involved in youth ministry. Now, some of our listeners, they would know, so God's Bible School and College, which whenever I say that that name, it's funny. People always look at me funny if they've never heard that name before. They're like, God's Bible School and College. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I went to God's Bible School and College. And a uh, quick story, but going back about 100 years ago, the founder, Martin Wells Knapp, he um, actually deeded the property to God. And so he, he uh, anyways, a little bit of history with that. But it's located, um, you could tell us a little bit more about about the uh, the geographics of where it's located. How, how close was it to your church? Uh, it was about two or three minutes. Uh, the church was located in a place called Over the Rhine. Uh, Guys Bible School and College is in Mount Auburn, if you're familiar, familiar at all with Cincinnati. Um, if you're not, Guys Bible School and College is basically in one of the older neighborhoods of Cincinnati, Ohio. So it's surrounded with, you know, big houses that have been probably built 100 or 200 years ago. And what happens in cities is, you know, one time those were mansions, now they're large apartment buildings. And, you know, multiple people live in it. And typically it's not so much your wealthy people anymore. They're living in those houses and in those homes in those neighborhoods, but it's your more low income. So God's Bible School and College is surrounded by ministry opportunities, you know, to those that are in those situations. Now, take a step down into the over the Rhine and you get into buildings that were built, some of them about 200 years ago. It was a German neighborhood and German immigrants were the ones that first would have moved into downtown Cincinnati. Um, and it was kind of the center of the city. You know, you had the canal that came down through there and um, they just built their houses up around it. Now, after they had been there for a while, they moved out. And then at that time, the housing was cheap. It started to you know get more decrepit and people moved out of it that had, you know, jobs and money and the people basically that were at the bottom of the barrel didn't have any else to go were the ones that ended up down there. Now, after being there for 14 years, that has started to change. So they've started to reclaim downtown Cincinnati and what's taking place there now is what they would call gentrification. So a lot of your hipsters and uh, your more artsy, wealthy type are moving back into the area. So it's been interesting to see the to see that actually happen in place it's kind of a historical thing i'm sure you know 20 years from now people will go down there and not realize you know what it was um you know basically a ghetto or slum or whatever you want to you know call it at that time because it really has changed a lot already yeah i remember when i first moved there i think it was 2005 right in the, right around that era, time and so different from what it is now like you go back there now and it, it just feels very different yeah, yeah, totally. Um, 
you know, I think we used to have the biggest business on our street were the drug dealers. So, you know, they'd throw their boots over the line right in front of our church. And I don't know exactly. A lot of people said that meant that's where you're supposed to come buy your drugs. I don't know. You know, different people say different things. Um, but there was a lot of crime and a lot of stuff that happened down there. Now down the street, you know, we have a little smoothie shop. We've got a little, you know, clothing boutique. You've got a hairdresser, you know, across the street. You've got a gourmet popsicle shop. It just has totally totally changed it's uh it's very interesting yeah i always remember we would drive down down to the uh called main street chapel and on the right just before you would go down the hill to where the chapel was located there was a place called was it the body snatcher something like that and i always wondered what is that place and i never checked it out for myself but uh yeah i don't know i actually drove through it once it was basically a drive-through grocery store the body snatcher now i don't know what was right beside it there was a little business beside it that had plywood all around it and you could walk in that and no one could see what you were doing or what you were buying. Um, that was part of the body snatcher. But I, the last time I was through, it was still there. Wow. Wow. So that one hasn't moved yet. So let's just kind of walk through really quickly here. How, how did God change your life, your view of ministry through working in the inner city? Just talk to us about Cincinnati. When, when you first started working there, how did you see the lives of people changed? How was it harder, more difficult than you imagined? All of those things that just kind of came with that. Sure. I think coming into the city, I didn't realize how much of an adjustment that I needed to make. Um, you know, how has God shaped my view of the city? I think, you know, number one, you come in and you see a city. You see you know, something really big. You see a big picture. Um, you know, after you've been there for a little while, you start to see the communities. So, you know, city really isn't just a city. It's not like I just walk anywhere or hang out anywhere. I've got a community. And once I'm in that city, you know, there's going to be 20, 30, 100 people that I'm very intimate with. And there's a whole lot of other people I walk by every day and, you know, don't necessarily talk to them, don't have a whole lot to do with them. They're just not part of my community. So, you know, when you first get in there, it's overwhelming. After you've been in there for a while, you start to split it up. And um, this is something my wife did and was very interesting is that she started a prayer ministry and she said, you know, we want to pray for our city, but let's pray for our community. So she actually started splitting up the different communities in Cincinnati. And I forget how many she came up with, but it was like 52 different communities that are part of Cincinnati. And that's where people live. That's where people interact. That's where they work at. And, you know, once you did that, you kind of started to get the size. And I think that's one of the things that God showed me going into the city. It's not just transforming a city. It was transforming your community. And that, in turn, transforms the city. Now, taking it down a step further, you have the people. Um, you know, it's not just transforming the city, but it's your neighbors. You know, it's the people that are around you. It's the people that are around your church, the people that are around your house. It's the people around there. And God really helped me to... I guess, changed my view. Coming into Cincinnati was impersonal. It was big. It was overwhelming. But when you really got down into it, um, it was it was working just with people. You know, it was working in small communities. It was trying to influence and impact the area that was right around each day. You know, that's interesting that you say that because I live in an area, it's called East Scarborough. And first, when we first moved up here, it was just like, okay, you're moving to Toronto. <laughs> but then you narrow it down to East Scarborough. But then even more beyond East Scarborough, we live in an area called the KGO community, Kingston, Galloway, and Orton Park area. And what's interesting is you talk to more residents that are right in this area, there does, there becomes more like a community feel that honestly, when we first moved here, it's like, oh, 
man, you know, yeah. it's like, will you ever recognize the same person or see them twice? And now you see people all the time and it's, it's actually gotten sure. smaller than you would have thought. And your, yeah. And your ministry needs to be in many ways where you live at in a city, you know, it's not enough just to live in Cincinnati. You know, I can live in Hyde park and then minister in over the Rhine. Those are both in Cincinnati, but there are some definite implications and people realize that. So I think that's one of the things. Um, you know, the other thing I think, coming in the city, a lot of people think of the city as an evil place. Um, I don't think after being there for this amount of time that I see the city necessarily as an evil place. I don't view it as a good place always, but I don't think it's any worse than a lot of places. I just think it's something that's unknown to a lot of people that are coming from the country. I also think that it is a tool that God uses. He gathers a lot of people together in the city so that he can witness to them. And you see uh, Paul kind of referring to that when he's talking on Mars Hill about how people are put in the places they are so that they can reach out and find God and that God in some ways may save some of them. So, um, you know, I guess that has changed as well as just my view of the city. Yeah. Talk to us about that, because that's something that's very interesting to me. This last summer, you came and you shared at our church um, about God being a missional God and how, right. how God is doing incredible things in the city. And, you know, I, I think we've all talked to people, and, and we've probably been there at one point in our lives, and, and I'm sure others have been there at different points in their lives, where there is a little bit of a fear and intimidation of the city. That, oh, you know, there, that's where all these bad, you know, New York City and, and Hollywood and all these things. But talk to us about, you know, what do you think God's doing? How is God a missional God, and how does that relate to the inner city? I think... Uh one thing that we need to realize, you know, going into the city is that God is a missional God. You know, one of my favorite verses is second Peter chapter three, verse nine. It says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, that's a verse that's right in the middle of the world coming to end and God judging people and, you know, taking that at face value, realizing that God does not want any single person in the world to perish you know, is revolutionary for many people because they don't think of God as a missional God. You know, they think as missions is something that people and churches do and maybe something that's happened in the New Testament. But if you look back through history, you know, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to Revelation chapter 22, you find that God is about redemption and that's what he wants to do. You know, right in the middle of telling Adam and Eve they were going to die, he also promised that he was going to send them a seed, uh, someone that would come after them that would basically save them from the curse and the sin. Um, you find, again, you know, Babel, God comes down and he confuses everyone and he creates, you know, messes up their languages so they can't understand each other. And so they can't do, you know, the things that they were doing. But right after that, he forms another nation as all these other nations are forming and says, I want you to be a blessing to all people. He said, I'm going to bless you, but I also want you know that you have a responsibility to be a blessing. So he wanted a nation to be a witness. And you find down through history, you know, that as Egypt came up, you know, you have Joseph and you have Abraham and you have different people that were very much influential in that superpower. And, you know, everyone in the world right then knew about Egypt. They knew what was going on there. There wasn't a ton of people in the world at that time. So all the population, you know, basically was um, very aware of what was happening in Egypt. And when you have Joseph coming up as second in command in just a very extraordinary way and the Pharaoh saying the holy gods are in him, it's a witness. It's a witness to the people. You know, again, after that, you have, uh, you know, other ones that came up. You have Assyria. 
and I think we all know about Assyria. You know, Jonah went to Assyria, and he spoke to them. You have Babylon that comes up, and there you have Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and you know, people where the king actually sends out, you know, just uh, proclamations to the whole land, to all the people in the earth, all the people that are under him, you know, that the God of Israel is the true God. And you just see this, and there's just a pattern that happens all the way up until Jesus comes. And, you know, and Jesus wasn't the beginning of redemption. He was just the continuation of it and the fulfillment of the promise that God had made throughout history. And I think realizing that God is a missional God helps us when we view the cities, because if you look at the trends that are happening right now, um, you see a missional God at work, you know, in Acts, it, Paul and Marcel talks about people being put in their places so that they can hear about God and so that God can reach them and so that they can reach out and find him. I believe God also puts people where they're at, Christians in the cities and Christians where they're at so that they can be there to help those people to find God. But what you see in cities is that they're growing. They're growing incredibly. Um, it would have been around 1900. There was a very small percentage of the world that was in cities. Now, today, over 50% of the world live in cities. If you look at the United States, if you look at Canada, over 80% of the populations are now contained in cities. And you say, why is that? You know, um, back around the 1900s, you know, maybe 30% was in cities. Why is God gathering people together? Well, look at the population. Uh, you know, back around 1900, we had about one and a half billion people in the world. Now we have almost eight billion people in the world. There are literally more people alive today than have died throughout all history. When you shared that fact, um, I think you shared that fact when you spoke, that was uh -huh. really a, a wake-up reminder for me. Just to think about right. that, that there's more people alive today than have been throughout all of history. That's That's amazing. That is, you know, it is very powerful and very realize that, you know, it's uh, it puts a lot of responsibility on us. And you say, God, what are you doing? Giving us all this responsibility. But you see that God's also bringing people together. You know, whereas maybe three percent of the world lived in urban areas, you know, back in 17, 1600s. Now you got over 50 percent of the world and more and more. And they're saying that, that that's just continuing to grow. So God's pulling people together. He's putting them in places so that it's easy for the message to get out. You know, if there's something that's happening in that city, then everyone in that city knows. And God's putting those people together, I believe, for the purpose so that they can, lost people can find God and so the church can find lost people. So what would you say, what are the unique opportunities a Christian has living in the city? And I, and I intentionally phrase the question this way, because sometimes we can think of living in the city as, well, this is my uh, challenge that I'm going to have to bear, and, and I'm going to, you know, I can't buy, as, like, housing prices. Take that, for instance. Like, right around where we live, housing prices are just through the roof, and it's ridiculous. And so for a lot of people, it's like, well, the city is kind of my cross I have to bear. <laughs> but But right. what opportunities do you see that Christians have living in the city? Uh, I mean, there are the crosses to bear, obviously, in the city. I think there's also a lot of opportunities. I mean, just for life, people are moving to the city because there's more opportunities in the city. So, you know, just for a Christian or non-Christian to come to the city, a lot of times your quality of life actually goes up. You have access to more and better hospitals. You have access to better educational resources. You have access to, you know, better parks and recreation and just a whole lot of things. So, you know, I think just coming into the city and taking advantage of some of those resources. Um, you know, just recently moved out of Cincinnati and we've come, you know, to a smaller, a smaller setting, uh, you know, where they don't have all that. And we're realizing like, wow, we lost a whole lot of things. So just, you know, as 
in general, the city has a lot to offer to people. It's not just evil, but there's a lot of good as well. Um, I think as far as witness, there's more people. So, you know, you just have a lot of chance to impact much, much more people. You know, if you're in a, a smaller setting, you know, you may have a church of 100 and that could be really big. I remember growing up and uh, the church where we were at and there we had 61 service and all the other churches around in the area, you know, heard about our church and what was happening there and thought, you know, that's incredible. You got 60. So I grew up thinking that, you know, 100 people was an astronomical number to have on a Sunday morning in a church. Uh, you know, you come into the city and you realize, you know, Main Street Chapel, we were just a small church. I worked full time. Uh, you know, we had children doing all kinds of things. And we had many times between 100 and 150 people from the community through our church in a week time. And I thought of us as a very small church. So, I mean, I think there's just a lot more opportunity to influence people. I think there's also a lot more opportunity to have a global influence. So you're interacting with people that are around the globe. And I don't know that we always do well at this, but the diversity and the connections that people have, if that could be leveraged by Christians and by the church, it could have an incredible global impact because you have people that are coming to college. You have people that are moving there that have family and countries around the world where we can't even get into, can't witness, can't reach to. And if we could just, I guess, grasp some of those opportunities and take advantage of them, um, you know, the church could be doing just incredible things right now uh, where it can't because of restrictions. You know, what what ways do you think that—let's talk about the church in particular here. Uh-huh. What ways do you think that the church probably needs, needs to make adjustments—and I'm talking very generally here—that um, we need to make adjustments in going in and doing inner-city ministry? How is it different than operating— a, a church of, like you mentioned, maybe 60 people in the country. Um, mm-hmm. are, are there different, I'm not looking at as much as, as strategies, but diff- just different ways that we should approach inner city ministry that's different than how we might generally, again, just I'm talking very generally here, we would approach sure. it in the country. Okay. Um, you're speaking more of inner city ministry, particularly, or urban ministry? Yeah, yeah, more more, more inner city ministry, yes. City ministry. Sure. I think um, when you go into inner city ministry, what you find is that you have a lot of people that are very needy. You know, you, uh, there's a question I think that you're going to ask a little bit later, but, you know, it had to do about, you know, about churches in the suburbs thriving and then the churches on the inner city not, you know, so much thriving. And I think a church is made up of people. So if the people are thriving, then often the church thrives. In the inner city, a lot of times the churches don't thrive because the people aren't thriving. And you find it over and over and over again, you know, that inner city churches are involved in holistic ministry. They're involved in helping their people thrive. And I think that's the difference between the church that I grew up in and then the church I pastored at Main Street Chapel was that, you know, my responsibility in the country was to help people spiritually thrive. In the city, it was just help them to thrive in any way that they needed to. You know, they needed jobs. They needed you know, access to health care. They needed, you know, help getting schooling. There was all these different areas. And for the church to thrive, there had to be a focus for from the church on the people thriving in it. So that definitely was uh, something. I think also that a lot of times we make church very complex. And when you're dealing in the inner city, you have people that have low education levels. You have people that are, um, you know, just have a lot of challenges and they may not necessarily be able to 
uh, operate in a complex thing. That's fine. You know, you can have a great big showy church, you know, in the inner city and attract a lot of people. But I guess one of the things that I've learned is that you really need to involve those people in your ministry. And if you have a ministry that is beyond the capacity and the capability of the average person that's being saved in that congregation, then they're never really going to be able to be involved in it and participate in the way that they need to. So give, give me some um, examples there. What were some ways that, that you did that? Um, you know, I don't think we did it well. And it's some of the things I look back at and think about Ezra. So, you know, some of the things that we did do is we had uh, ministry opportunities, uh, you know, in the forms of the choir. So we did a lot with music, which is very interesting because I'm totally non-musical, but it just seems like that's kind of what sprung up. So I guess God uses our weaknesses and works through those. Um, but we had the choirs, you know, we'd have people that would be involved in the choir, you know, my wife and different ones would direct the choir and we'd take them out on choir trips to raise money for the ministry. But also a big thing of that was that allowed them to be involved in the ministry. They'd go out and they'd minister to other people. They would go out and they would see different parts of the country. Many of them have never been outside of Cincinnati. They'd never been outside of Ohio. Um, I've talked with people that, you know, were incredibly ignorant about what happened outside. Um, you know, there's a man that didn't believe in deserts. And it gave these, the teens and the youth and the adults that we were working with a chance to get outside of that. And not only to get outside of that in the sense of like, hey, we're taking you on this trip, but in the sense that they're going out and they're doing something for someone else and ministering to them. So that was one of the ways, um, you know, other ways I've always set high expectations for people and, you know, they kind of laugh at it and sometimes push on me, but we've gotten them involved in education, um, you know, at the God's Bible School and College, a number of them went up to the high school and to the academy. And then we also had other ones that went through college. We actually had our first college graduate just this last year with a bachelor's degree and she's very involved in ministry. So happy for that. We let them drive the vans. You know, that was nerve wracking the first time I ever did that. I'm like, am I going to let someone drive the church van that, you know, used to ride in the church van. And that was, you know, kind of a paradigm shift for me. We had them do that, you know, have them speak, teach Sunday school, anything that I could get someone else to do, I would have them do it. Yeah. That, that would be a little nerve wracking at first, I think. And, and you know, talk about that. I, I want to get your response to this. Um, Several months ago, I was listening to Pastor Tim, Timothy Keller speak and um, at his church, a Redeemer Presbyterian in York City. And uh, I love I love some of the stuff that he has to share because he really shares from uh, a just, you know, city perspective. And right. he said, he said, as a pastor in New York City, he's noticed that Christians, they often approach the inner city in one of three ways— he said, number one, he said, maybe they just try to endure it, and then they try to get out as quickly as possible so that they can get more health for their money. That would definitely apply here in Toronto as well, because, you know, you want to get out to the burbs, because then you can, you know, get a little more bang for your buck. Um, but then mm -hmm. he said, another thing that Christians will sometimes do is they conform to the culture of the city. They Maybe they adopt the values of secularism. But then he said, right. he offered a third alternative, and I think he talked about some other things, but these were the three that really stood out to me. He said, then there are the Christians that stay as long as they are called to be there in the city, and I, the key is being called to be there, and they become productive gospel citizens who work to transform the various aspects of culture, and he compared this kind of to how the Israelites operated when they were in captivity in, in Babylon, and how they, they, you know, people like Daniel worked, and they didn't just whine about the society, they actually made a difference, not just in terms of, of, of sharing about God, but they actually made a difference through their contribution 
to the society as well. So I just sure. I, I, that was really interesting to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I really agree with him. There's something else that he said that really helped me. Another little pamphlet that he put together, and he called it "City Appreciation." And, you know, that was probably kind of a changer for me because there was a point in my life where I realized, you know, I have to love the people. It's not just enough to say, you know, I'm down here because God's called me down here. But it's also I have to say I'm down here because I love the people. Um, Okay, let's just pause right there. That (laughs) I would say that's probably the biggest chunk right there that if you were to highlight something of, of our talk. Right. That's huge right there, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, we took someone out to a ministry retreat where we were supposed to speak at. It was from our church. And after speaking, you know, we had said, you know, how we were there because God had called us. And he said, you're there because you like us, too. And it took me back. And I said, yeah, I am there because I liked it. And it was just a, it was one of those turning points in your life where something just kind of opens up and you're like, yeah, I'm not here just because I'm obeying God. I am but I'm also here because I love the people and I need to learn to love the people. Um, part of that kind of what I think uh, Tim Keller's getting at as well is loving the people is loving their city. So, you know, we can come into from the approach that the only reason anyone would be in the city is because they can't afford or aren't able to get out. And that's the wrong approach. I mean, that's just looking down on the people. Um, it's kind of one of those, hmm, what can I say? Kind of one of those backhanded compliments you know, it's like, I'm here to help you. I'm living in your neighborhood only until I can get out. And I want to help you get out as well. You know, and it's kind of the assumption that they're too poor, or they're too stupid, or they're not um, sophisticated enough to realize that this is, you know, a bad place for them to be living at. Um, as far as, you know, what he had said about impacting that city in many different ways, um, as I mentioned before, for the church to thrive, the people have to thrive. And for the city to thrive, the community needs to thrive. And I think one of the biggest witnesses that a lot of times we miss is not what we say, but what we do. We need to talk. We need to be verbal. We need to go out and spread the gospel. And I don't want to go down that path where we don't. But um, in the city, people are watching you all the time. Um, One of the things that we did was we started putting Christmas lights up (laughs) at Christmas time. That was my wife. That wasn't me. I'm like, no one else does it. We shouldn't do it. It was amazing how that helped to start transforming our neighborhood around Christmas time. When we put it up, I mean, no one put up Christmas lights on our street. There wasn't a single person. And we're the only one. We're the sore throne. We're basically coming, come and rob us. You know, we have Christmas lights up. Come to our house and take our Christmas presents. Um, you know, here just a couple of years ago, we looked up and down the street, and there was probably, you know, half a dozen to a dozen houses that had Christmas lights up and down. You say, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. It does. You know, the kids that walk up and down that street, you know, there's something that it changes about the atmosphere. There's something that changes about the community. People start taking pride in their community. They start taking pride in themselves and in their houses and their homes. And they look back and they say, you know what? Um, You know, maybe that wasn't a witness for God, but I think it was. A lot of people looked at that and they mentioned to us afterward, they looked at us favorably because of what we contributed to our community. And they kind of, in a way, realized and gave that glory unto God. And, you know, it's kind of what Jesus said, you know, do your good works so that people will praise your Father in heaven. So people appreciated what we did for the community. And because we were Christian, because we were verbal about that, that also went back and reflected on God. I think that's really interesting, and I would just want to follow that up with, with another question here. When, 
sometimes when you will talk with people, maybe other Christians who are working in the inner city or they're working, um, and a lot of times I will hear, and I I know I've been guilty of this as well, where, okay, we're going to go in there, we're going to evangelize, and we're going to transform the city by the power of the word. We're going to be like, you know, Peter and Paul, we're going to be bold in our witness, and we just need to share the gospel, and if we share the gospel, people will get saved, and when they get saved, then they're going to transform their lives, and why should we worry about transforming their lives when the gospel is really what they need? Why should we give them just physical food when we need to give them spiritual food, because that's what's going to sustain in the long run? So you kind of go down this trail, and Mm -hmm. there's almost like this feeling where, well, why would you go and just give bread to a person. It's not quite that bad, but it's like, why don't you really do what's spiritual? Speak to that. Right. Um, You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do and the thing that reflects the greatest on God is by just helping someone out in some way. You know, it may not seem a spiritual way. Um, When Jesus was on the earth, you know, not all of his ministry was teaching. He was a great teacher and he was a great preacher and he went around from town to town, but he also healed people and he spent time with children and he spent time eating and socializing with publicans. And, you know, definitely was a big part of his ministry. It wasn't just all preaching or speaking or the word, but there was a lot of other things that he did as well. Um, I think one of the things that Christians maybe fail to realize today is that people don't view Christianity very favorably. You know, so for a long time, it was set on a pedestal and we were, you know, Christians was kind of the favored religion. And now when people question it and when, you know, newspapers write about it and when people that are uh, media kind of downplays uh, Christianity, a lot of people will kind of get, you know, get up in arms and say, you know, what are they talking about? You know, Christianity is the religion in a sense. You know, they feel this defense of it. Um But a lot of that's because we haven't really followed through with what we said we did. So we believe in God. We believe in doing good. We believe in giving. We believe in charities. And that's what Christianity has believed down through history. You know, a lot of the major advancements in Christianity and charities and hospitals, you know, most every single hospital in Cincinnati, except for two, Jewish Hospital and Shriner Hospital, were founded by Christians for Christian reasons. That was a witness to the whole city of what God was doing in the world, that God was active, that God was working you know when a sick person came into christ hospital or into children's hospital a sick child came in there you know they were realizing that this was a result of god being active in the world christians have stepped away from that you know now they've given up the hospitals they've given up the schools they've given up the education uh, given up their communities and they're saying you know we're just in our church we need to get outside of the church and we need to get involved in that because that's what people look at for validation of our faith they want to see what we're doing and if it matches with what we're saying. That's re- that, that's very powerful. And adding on to what I talked about earlier, I mentioned that Tim Keller quote, uh-huh. and how he, there, there's a little bit of a fatigue factor sometimes among Christians that when they go into the city, and I, I've seen this, I know you've seen this as well, where um, sometimes it's kind of like, okay, we'll go into the inner city and we'll do our time. So from my observation, right. I'd love to hear your thoughts here. A lot of times when I will observe Christians go into the inner city, um, and they go in kind of more for evangelistic purposes. They're not just going there because of work. They'll often last maybe six months, a year, maybe up to three years. And again, I say this very, very humbly as as someone who's only lived up in East Scarborough now for just over two years. Um, but I, I do feel that fatigue factor is very real, that after about two or three years, the pressures from whether it's 
uh, family members, friends who are all doing different things, there is that pressure to, hey, you need to help, you know, raise your kids in, in a, a better environment. And how do you, so you, you were in the inner city for 14 years. How did you deal with that? Sure. Uh, talk a little bit about the problem and I'll talk to you a little bit how I dealt with it. One of the things I realized later on after being involved in ministry and after a lot of reading and some other things is that most people come into the inner city and most people go into missions or into any other kind of evangelistic work kind of with a God complex. I think it's especially in the inner city. And what I mean by that is not necessarily it's bad to do good, but you come in there thinking that people are going to think you're something great, that you're going to change lives, that it's going to be easy, that you're going to have the healing touch and that every person you touch is going to be healed. And a lot of times with that complex, they go to the very most difficult person, you know, so they go to the guy on the corner that's drunk and has been drunk for, you know, the last 20 years, or they go to the team that's just totally rebellious. And in the process, they ignore a lot of other people that are screaming out for their attention, you know, the shy kid that needs a friend and the mother that just needs a little help with raising her children, the people that aren't so vocal and so loud about what their needs are. And they go to that person, spend a lot of time with that person. That person has dealt with people like that before. And they say a lot of things that, you know, the person makes helps build up the ego. And then they really disappoint them. You know, they really blow it. They don't get the job or they get drunk or get addicted again. And the person gets disappointed and they say, I can't do it anymore. I'm not God. And, you know, that's one thing I had to come across coming there. Um, I was driving downtown Cincinnati one day with a guy who was basically homeless. Um, he was officially homeless. He was what you call a couch surfer. So he went from one friend's house to another friend's house every night. And some nights he didn't have it. So he slept out in the hallways. And he said, I am the happiest guy in the world. I was driving him. He didn't know where he was sleeping that night. I just looked at him. I didn't say a word. I just looked at him. And I don't think he realized that I was surprised. But I did not consider him the happiest guy in the world. I knew all the problems. I knew that, you know, he was he dropped out of school, that he'd been in prison, that he didn't have any place to sleep. And he really was the happiest guy in the world. He didn't need me. He liked me and I could play a part in his life and I could participate in his life. But I wasn't God. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of Christians need to get over when coming in. And that's part of the burnout. Um, it's a good burnout. It's realizing that while I am not necessarily needed in these people's lives, um, I can give them something that's valuable. And a lot of times that's teaching them that they don't need me and that they don't need someone else. They need God. And they need to use the resources that they have available. Uh, as far as how I dealt with that balance, that uh, burnout, though, um, I just did a lot of different things. So, you know, I didn't I focused on ministry and that was a major part of my life. And that was the reason that I stayed in Cincinnati for as long as what I did. But I was also focusing on my education. I worked. Um, we had our ministry and also had my family. And I made sure that that had equal times um, when ministry was down and I was feeling burned out with that. You know, I'd continue maintaining and I'd continue doing what I need to do. But I also had these other outlets, you know, of work and family and education. And sometimes work didn't go so great, to be honest. And ministry was. And just allowed those different things to kind of prop me up throughout the year. So, yeah, there was times when it was stressful to try to balance all of that. But overall, I think that really helped because you never necessarily were failing at everything at once. And um well, and, and going along with that, you've, you know, uh, uh, you've raised four kids uh, in, in the inner city. And 
a while ago, I was listening to um, Pastor Jim Simbola speak, and he was talking about, uh, and he was speaking um, with his wife, Carol, and they had had some problems with their oldest daughter, Chrissy, and, and she, uh, and if anyone's familiar with, with Jim Simbola, they know this, they're probably familiar with this story. And uh, he he talks about how one day that Carol just came home and she would just was was so animated that we are getting out of the inner city. Even at that time, they had seen God do so many incredible things in the city of Brooklyn. They were just she was scared to death, and the devil, you know, and, and Jim Simbola, in his words, the devil had told her that if she continued to remain there, she would lose her kids, even though the church might grow. Sometimes when I talk to people that minister in the in the inner city, there really is that genuine fear. I mean, I I, would, I have that fear of yeah. raising a family. So, right. how did you how did you balance that? How did you uh, work with having your were your kids hands on in ministry? How, how did how did they work with people that obviously had some challenges? Yeah. Um, you know, our children aren't grown yet, so can't necessarily tell you that we've done it right. But, you know, I do have some very good kids. They all are Christians. You know, the oldest is nine and then we've got one that's eight and another one that's four. And, you know, right now all of them are Christians and they're doing very well and they're very active. I think the two things that we really focused on was protection and participation. So, you know, I think one mistake that I've seen others make is that they use their children as a tool in ministry. And they want other people to feel like they accept them. And I'll accept them in a whole lot of ways, but I don't trust anyone with my children. <laughs> and maybe that's down on me. I don't know. But we've never really found it to be a problem in our ministry. We just let everyone know it's the same standard that we hold for everyone. You know, there's, um, you know, anyone. doesn't matter color or economic status, whatever. You know, our kids are our kids, and we're going to watch our kids and take care of our kids and protect our kids. And I think that was also helpful for some of them because that's one of the challenges that a lot of parents have in the inner city is, you know, knowing how to maybe properly protect their children. A lot of bad things happen to them. So that protection, you know, we were very, very protective. The other thing was participation. Um, You know, we could just go and do ministry. I could just go and do ministry by myself. But, you know, allowing the kids to be part of the ministry in the sense, you know, that they were praying for people that, you know, um, that they were comfortable to get up and testify or that they would take up the offering or doing that and being conscious that it wasn't us and them us that were ministering to the people down in inner city but it was all of us ministering together and my children were part of that congregation they were people that i need to um pour my life into and invest in just as much as anyone else down there so those were the two things i think that have really helped us so far with our children protection and participation those those are really good yeah I, I, i like those a lot Kind of coming back, we just got a couple minutes left here. So coming back to the whole missional theme. Right. What do you see God doing in the inner cities over the next 20, 30 years? So let's just kind of dream together. I mean, what what do you really see from a trend maybe um, in the past? Mm -hmm. How do you think the cultural landscape is going to shift? And how do you know, sometimes I've, you know, again, we've heard, Christians that could be very down and, and talk as though, you know, we just hope the world's going to end and end very soon. But over the next 20, 30 years, I really think there's a tremendous opportunity that Christians have. And so talk about that. Yeah. 
I think that urban ministry is a new thing for a big reason is that urban settings have only started to grow here recently. I think going forward, as more Christians become aware of the need and as more organizations get on board with it, that urban ministry is going to become increasingly strategic and important. Um, I think there's a great opportunity with so many people being together for us to influence not only our local communities, but also communities all over the world. I mean, I know we were up in your church, Ezra, and you have people <laughs> literally from, you know, probably, you know, three or four different continents that are coming there and worshiping. And they've got family members and they've got people that are back in their homes that are seeing their Facebook posts that are talking to them on a regular basis on the phones. You know that um, if we can get the people that are coming to our churches that are involved in the cities to be missional, that they can start reaching out to the people that are there. Um, I think that what God is doing you know, has already been demonstrated with just the large growth. You know, we went from being urban to 50% of the world being urban. The United States, you know, from, you know, just uh, down in the teens to over 80% in the United States and Canada being in urban areas. God's pulling people together and he's continuing to do that. Uh, the diversity, you know, I think just incredible diversity. And I think that's a good thing for churches because we learn a lot from cultures that are different from us. Um, you know, there's a lot that we can learn about hospitality from people that are coming from the Middle East and from other countries, you know, that God's word speaks into. There's a lot that we can learn, you know, about the spirit world from people that are coming from Africa and from Latin America. There's a lot that we can learn, you know, about the Holy Spirit from all those countries. And I think as more people come together that you'll find that we not only are becoming more diverse, but that we're becoming deeper interfaith as we learn to embrace each other. So I, you know, I have a lot of confidence that God knows what he's doing. It kind of helps to see how God is working in the world, just as you look at demographics and that. And I think God has a purpose and he's going to make sure that the people that are there on the earth right now are reached. But he is putting it on people's hearts. Um, one of the things I do think we need to do going forward is that need the inner city churches need to not only be missions, where people come and get saved, but that those people that come and get saved need to be taught that they're saved so that they serve. They need to be taught that they're blessed so that they can be a blessing and that they go out and they minister to their families and their communities. It's not just the pastor's job, and it can't be with the mass of responsibility we have right now. Very well said. And talk about writers, speakers, leaders. Uh -huh. Who do you most admire? What, what are some resources you'd just recommend for people that are listening? Sure. Uh, I really like Tim Keller. You mentioned him. He's done a lot in urban ministry. He works a lot with uh, kind of the younger, more sophisticated type, which, you know, you can't ignore. Uh, you know, that college age really appeals to him, and he's got a lot of things out there that are, you know, great in that area. Uh, like, like Ray Bakke. So probably if people have been, you know, much of urban readers, they've run across him. Um, he's got some incredible statistics and about urban settings in there. Another one that I think is probably a must read for everyone would be Bob Lupton. And he would be one that focuses a lot on how to do ministry in the right way so that, you know, what we do isn't actually hurting people and, you know, that we're treating people as equals rather as coming in as people with the God complex that are going to help these poor people with their needs. And um, I've learned a lot from him. But those, are, those would be probably three that right off the top of my head would be um, incredible. Another one, it's not necessarily urban ministry, but it'd be Amy Sherman, Kingdom Calling. And I think that's good for Christians as well as, you know, what I mentioned is just lay people being involved in ministering and um, just 
that book there goes, you know, does incredible and in letting us know what kind of sphere of influence we have, even if we're not a pastor. And th- those are very helpful. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes here, the podcast. So you can just click on those as well. And just to wrap up with this question, you know, the reason that this program is called the Monday Christian podcast is because we really want to help people to put into action the truth of God's word that they hear on Sunday to their everyday life on Monday. And uh, sometimes we hear about, you know, the Sunday Christians that they come, they come to church, but then they don't really want to have much to do with God throughout the week. But we really want to help people to put into action the truth of God's word all throughout the week. And so last question for you, after serving God for how many years have you followed God? Oh, wow. I would have been about eight years old. So, oh, you asked me to do the math here. It would have been 24 years now. Wow. 24 oh. years. Wow. Years. Yep. So after serving God 24 years, what is the type of Monday Christian that you most admire? Um, you know, the per- type of Monday Christian that I most admire would be someone who is teachable, and wants to learn. You know, there's a lot of people that come in with it all figured out on Sundays, including me. You know, there's many Sundays I go in and I don't get anything out of the pastor's message, not because he doesn't have anything for me. I'm in with the right spirit. So the kind of Christian that I want to be on Monday, the kind of Christian that I admire is the one that's teachable, the one that is consciously trying to become their best and do their best so that they can be consistent with what they say in both their beliefs and actions. Um, There's a lot of things that we believe, but we're just not consistent in that. And I think that is probably one of the biggest things that Christianity has to come to grips with and needs to um, resolve, especially in urban ministry where everyone's watching you, is that what we say and what we believe has to be consistent with who we are and how we act. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This really, I mean, it has been fantastic. Well, I have enjoyed it. So thank you very much for the invitation, Ezra. And to all our listeners out there, I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. Well, hey, there you have it. And I, I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed some of the things that Matt had to share. And one of the particular things that really stood out to me is the importance of just loving people and letting people know that they're not just projects that you're trying to manage or that you're just trying to be there in the inner city because you're missional, but because you really care for people. You actually like people and you love people. And I just thought that was very, very powerful and uh, really connected with me. If you have any thoughts, comments, I'd love to hear uh, any thoughts that you might have. You can email me, Ezra, at mondaychristian.com. And hey, we're into the third week of this, so if you've enjoyed some of the podcasts that you've heard, I would really appreciate it if you haven't subscribed. Subscribe already, maybe refer your friend to this podcast, and also go on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a positive review. That would help out a lot and just helps to generate more traffic to our site. Anyways, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I'm Ezra Beyer, and I'll talk to you all very soon. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program and other resources that can help you grow stronger in your walk with God, simply visit our website, mondaychristian.com. That's mondaychristian.com.